0: Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the breast center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, you'll hear a conversation about pediatric neuro-oncology with Dr. Asher Marks. Dr. Marks is assistant professor of pediatrics and hematology oncology and director of pediatric neuro-oncology at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. So pediatric
1: neuro-oncology, I think, um, for a parent, the idea of... This is brain tumors, right? That is like the scariest... Uh, most awfulest thing that we—one of the most awfulest things we worry about as parents.
2: It it is, absolutely. Um, I honestly can't think—you know, when I first meet a family, I usually say, and I have to give this terrible diagnosis, um, I kind of make it clear that this is probably the worst thing that they're ever going to go through. Um, I'm I'm often giving the worst news anyone will ever hear. Um, The one silver lining, if you could call it that— is that uh, the success rates in treating brain tumors um, are better than most people think for, for pediatrics, um, and we're getting better every day. Um, it really depends on the tumor. It depends on the location. Um, something that we focus on now is trying to uh, diminish long-term side effects of both the tumor and treatment um, while we uh, continue to improve our overall success rates. Well, I'm Definitely very eager to get to the sort of the positive
1: uh, silver linings, (laughs) but... uh... Um, but before we get there, um, why don't we start with um, sort of a what age are kids uh, at risk for brain tumors?
2: Yeah, so so it really runs the gambit um, in terms of age at risk from from infants all the way up to teenagers, depending on the on the tumor that we we're, that we we're, uh, that we're talking about. So um, pediatric brain tumors, when we kind of look at them at a molecular level, we know that they differ from adult tumors, um, and when that switch in the underlying biology occurs, you know, I don't think we're all that show it's probably somewhere in the 20s or 30s, um, but the types of tumors can can range from actually uh, babies that are born with tumors um, all the way up into late adolescence. Hmm. So, what would I
1: see uh, as a parent mm-hmm. uh, if I, you know, if my kid were developing a brain tumor?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, and it's one that we get uh, often. Um, unfortunately, the signs that you often start seeing are those that happen. Um, very commonly in, in everyday scenarios. So, um, before I get into it, I don't, I don't want anyone to to freak out, to be scared, because I'm going to say some things that. You'll think back and say, "Gee, I, I see that every week." You know, should I be getting an MRI? Should I be bringing my my child to uh, to the pediatrician? Yeah. Um, so, so the things that are are obvious, the things that are very concerning in emergencies are um, things like seizures, things like um, terrible terrible headaches that aren't going away on for hours on end, um, changes in what we call the focal neurologic findings. So, one arm is weak, one leg is weak. There's a change in vision, things like that. So, those are kind of obvious, and those are situations where parents are rushing their kids to the ER. The situations that I kind of warned about when I started are things like headaches, um, things like um, um, slow changes in vision. Um, and, and, you know, these... these uh, These symptoms have their own uniqueness with brain tumors. So, for example, um, if we saw a child with headaches mostly in the morning when they first wake up, if we see those headaches associated with vomiting in the morning, Mm. then we get a little bit more concerned. You know, more than likely, it's not a brain tumor. Um, But that's when we kind of start raising our antennae. You know, I I have to say, I I feel oftentimes for these primary care pediatricians because they're dealing with symptoms like this all the time. And and it's sometimes tough to say, when am I going to pull the trigger? When am I going to get that scan? And, you know, you can have uh, primary care pediatricians who will go a whole career and see very, very few, if any, brain tumors in that tire, entire mm. period of time. So that can kind of give you a sense as to how rare these are, despite the fact that many of the presenting symptoms are quite common. Yeah, and, and I, I would assume in
1: contrast, uh, eye strain and headaches and, you know, I can't see the board, mommy. <laughs> I mean, those happen like every day, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. D- just so you know, when, when my kids were young, um, there were any number of symptoms that my uh, wife, uh, was concerned meant they were becoming autistic. So uh-huh. this, this was like her, uh, or schizophrenic. These were, sure, and, sure. Uh, you know, gratefully, our kids are healthy adults and never had any major problems, but yeah. we, we had to talk her down, you know, any number of times. <laughs> Sorry, Amy, uh, tell, tell them, tell them hanging out the dirty laundry, but, you know, that's why they pay me the big bucks on the radio. <laughs> so, uh, so it sounds like most of the, uh, most of the diagnoses will be made by primary care physicians. Or some will some will come through the ED, uh, emergency department. Uh, if a kid presents with new seizures, I guess most of us would take. Yeah, yeah, I'd room. say
2: that most of the uh, new diagnoses come through the ER. We've had diagnoses come from ophthalmologists where they kind of do their eye exam, um, and they see findings consistent with the brain tumor during during that period of time. Um, we also uh, occasionally see children, uh, actually, yeah, presenting from the primary care doctor who sent them for an MRI, and all of a sudden these MRI results come back quite alarming. And then we immediately get a phone call, and usually at that point send the kids to the ED and work them up from there. Hmm. So, the, so the kids will get admitted to the hospital usually? Um, on first diagnosis, um, unless it looks like something that's been there a long time and there, there are absolutely really no symptoms in a situation where we call... Um, kind of cheekily, an incidentaloma, something that's found incidentally. Um, then, yeah, yeah, we, we we often do admit from the beginning, just get everything in order, whether it's necessary or not, to get things in order, make sure that the ball gets rolling, um, and that the kids are safe. My ki- my guess is the parents aren't too fond of this incidentaloma. <laughs> We're not too fond of <laughs> the incidentaloma. <laughs> um, it's a situation where we see it and we can't ignore it, and we follow it with serial MRIs. But you don't think it's really we serious. don't think it's Feeling really anything? You yeah. know, we, we don't know how much the population is walking around with these ditzels that we would see if we scanned everybody in the world. So, so they're not really tumors; they're just well, something. there's are something a lesion, if you will. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah.
1: Gotcha. So you know, I know in most Bre- in most cancers, uh, to make a diagnosis, one has to actually. Get a piece of tissue and do a biopsy is that the case with brain tumors as well for the most part it is um unfortunately you're gonna you're gonna <laughs> drill into
2: my kid's head <laughs> i'm not uh <laughs> good a neurosurgeon no, I still my, like my, you, michael de luna right? michael de luna is a phenomenal uh pediatric brain surgeon here at yale wow he, he does all our pediatric cases um, He's not running for president. That's another brain surgeon, right? <laughs> that, That's another, yeah, we won't... So that's another story, <laughs> that's right? That's another story, yeah. Keep <laughs> the politics out of it. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so there are a few situations where we can look at a tumor... And we can say, you know, given the uh, clinical situation, the, the patient's history, and exactly what this looks like on scan, we know what it is, and, and we don't really have to go in. Really? Um, it's unusual. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd say the few incidences are perhaps with patients with an underlying syndrome called neurofibromatosis. We know that they often get low-grade gliomas, and they have a very characteristic look on scan. That's the elephant man disease,
1: right? Or um, no?
2: Am I wrong? I don't know. I never examined the elephant man. I think he had um, <laughs> neurofibromatosis. Was it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so with neurofibromatosis, uh, we can often kind of pick those out. The other ones are, are very, very bad tumors called DIPGs, diffuse um, infiltrating pontine gliomas. And, and these have a very distinct look on MRI. Anything out of this realm, we often need a biopsy. Hmm. Um, fortunately, uh, because Dr. DeLuna is so good and we've advanced so much, in uh, brain surgery techniques, we can often um, get in and out without much neurologic deficit. Get our get our diagnosis and and make the plan from there. So you're not trying to resect the whole tumor or remove not the whole always, tumor. not always. You know, we we like to in general get as much as the tumor as we can. Um, that being said, there are tumors that are exquisitely sensitive to chemotherapy and radiation, and. Um, if we we get in the sense that that's what it is, and we know that a aggressive resection is going to result in loss morbidity, sometimes try to get in and out, and then go back for a second surgery if necessary. How, how do you deal with the kids if they're of a if they're not infants? And this
1: must be just like the very most terrifying thing ever mm-hmm. that they'll. I mean, I think it's terrifying to me as an adult. I mean. Yeah. I just can't imagine being a five-year-old or a seven-year-old or a
2: 13-year-old and and going for brain surgery. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, And I have to give a hand to my ancillary services for that. Um, We work very closely with Social Work, um, who is excellent with the parents, good with the kids. But even more so in relating with the kids, we've got a department called Child Life. um, And these are very um, well-trained, experienced um, practitioners who are used to working with children in these situations, and they are used to um, dealing with a child's stress and anxiety, and then working around that working through it and being able to educate them Hmm. um and just like any situation when i think i think when a person goes into a situation knowing as much as they can that can help relieve the stress and relieve that anxiety um the unknown is always the scariest oh yeah um so i think child life plays a, a very important role in in getting our patients through it um emotionally intact
1: I understand that uh, this is a little off topic, but I understand that one of the pediatric oncology social workers won a Compassionate (laughs) Practitioner Award recently for SMILOC. Yes, Marisol.
2: She is uh, phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, I read the
1: nominations and a very moving ceremony where she got that award as a compassionate caregiver. Yeah. Yeah. We were
2: incredibly proud of her. Really Um, remarkable. um, Yeah. She she is amazing. She uh, consistently goes above and beyond. Yeah. Um, and, and fortunately we've got, uh, many people in our department that do that. Yeah.
1: And well, I think, I think pediatric oncology is, uh, you know, I, I have utmost respect for you guys. Uh, and then neuro-oncology to me, it's a, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a cut above. So, um, okay. So, so we've, we've gotten the kid to, uh, uh, to get to the OR without having to like chain him down. We probably <laughs> did chain him down and he's had a surgery. Uh, and he's gotten through that
2: hopefully well, he or she. Now what happens? Now's the hard part. Um, there's a lot of waiting afterwards and, and I think that's, you know, like I said, the unknown's always the scariest. And we try to give as much um, information to parents as we can prior to the biopsy in terms of what they can expect afterwards. Um, but the reality is we often don't know if this is a benign tumor, a malignant tumor. We don't know if we're going to have to be talking about radiation or chemotherapy or further surgery. And so after surgery, oftentimes parents have to wait several days until mm. we get that final pathology. Um, and that's often where I kind of enter the picture. Um, and I try to introduce myself as a member of the brain tumor team, because to be honest, not all of these are cancers. And, mm. and I think that word holds a lot of weight. Um, and in when parents are in this situation, they're in a very delicate, very fragile emotional state. So you, you haven't have to even be very met careful. them yet? No, sometimes I have. It depends on the situation. You know, it, it depends on how long the patient was there prior to surgery. There are times when um, Michael DeLuna has to come in at 2 a.m. for emergent surgery, and I don't see them until, you know, 7, 8 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes I will have to come in after surgery. Um, sometimes I go in before, but usually when I go in before, it's, it's to say, hi, I'll be around. don't have much to say now. You wear clown nose or anything cool like that? <laughs> no, I and, want and my <laughs> pediatric <laughs> dermatologist to wear a clown nose. You know, it's, wig. It's, it's funny. Uh, people don't like to meet me, and I, I can't blame them. I you know, I, and and sometimes I say, you know, hopefully you'll never have to see me again. Right? No, I get it. Yeah. So, um, so they get the pathology, and, and and what happens then? Once we have the pathology, um, I can usually give the parents an initial sense of what treatment's going to look like. Most patients are presented at our uh, oncology tumor board where we discuss with radiation oncology, radiology, neurosurgery, and and other oncologists um, as to what we think is best from a a team approach. Many cases that are are more complicated, I'll I'll even uh, present at a uh, collaborative brain tumor board Um, I participate in along the East Coast with other institutes such as uh, Children's National Medical Center, uh, Walter Reed, um, uh, King's Daughters uh, in North Carolina. Um, So we'll go through a process of of, uh, analyzing the case very closely and coming up with a plan.
1: All right. Well, this is a fascinating uh, topic, uh, and uh, we will take it up after a medical minute which we are now going to take a short break for please stay tuned to learn more information about adolescent oncology and in particular pediatric neural oncology
0: with dr asher marks genetic testing can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families genetic counseling is a process that includes collecting a detailed personal and family history a risk assessment and a discussion of genetic testing options only about 5 to 10% of all cancers are inherited, and genetic testing is not recommended for everyone. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. The Yale Cancer Center Cancer Genetic Counseling Program is a new frontier in the fight against cancer. The program provides genetic counseling and testing to people at increased risk for hereditary cancer and helps them to make informed medical decisions based on their own personal risk assessment. This has been a Medical Minute, brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore,
1: and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Asher Marks. We are discussing adolescent oncology and pediatric neurooncology. Asher, before the break, you were telling me that for really complicated cases, you participate in a tumor board that's across the East Coast. Mm-hmm. How does yes. that work? I mean, it's not it's, the, it can't be it can't be face to face, right? This the magic
2: of teleconferencing. Wow, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, I, uh, so I trained in Washington, and um, when I left, I installed some software on my laptop that uh, let me talk to them whenever I, whenever I felt the need. Uh, we can consult on cases together, um, and every institute kind of involved in this tumor board has a camera, and we meet every two weeks. It's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. And how long do you meet for? As long as necessary. <laughs> um, anywhere from um, half hour to an hour.
1: Anyway, I think that's got to be so powerful because I can't imagine that even at the biggest centers, there are so many of you. Absolutely. And it can
2: seem very lonely making decisions, I would think. Uh, you, right, you hit for, the nail right in right the head. Kid. Yeah, yeah. So so these are very um, rare tumors. and And there are experts scattered throughout the country. And most institutes don't need more than one. Um, so this is a great way for us to bounce ideas off each other, um, really keep up to date as to who's doing what. Um, and it's it's a very, very valuable tool. Hmm. So
1: is therapy really tailored to the individual or is it pretty much uh, this kind of brain cancer is treated this way and that kind of brain cancer is treated that way? We're getting there.
2: Um, we're getting there. Right now, um, it is more... Of a situation where this brain cancer is treated that way and that's treated another way. But what we're discovering is that the names that we have for these cancers come from what we call the histologic diagnosis, kind of looking at the cells. How they look. How they look, yeah. Um, And fortunately, as technology progresses, we can actually look at what the proteins on the cells look like or what the DNA in the cells look like. Mm-hmm. So that is where the personalization is coming from. Um, a great example of, of where that's headed is actually in a new trial that will be opening soon in collaboration with St. Jude, where well, we're looking at medulloblastomas. They're the most common... Medulloblastoma. Medullo, yes. Okay. Um, the most common malignant brain tumor in childhood. Huh. Um, used to be this one group. The question used to be, radiate now, radiate later, give this chemo, that give that chemo. Um, as of about five years ago, um, some collaborative groups... Uh, much of it led by Mike Taylor in Toronto, have actually discovered that these tumors are actually more like four different types of tumors. No kidding. With very unique molecular characteristics and prognosis implications. Um, so this upcoming trial is going to be looking at molecular markers on these tumors and tailoring it to four different therapies. Um, the hope is as time goes on, we get more used to targeted therapies. Um, we'll be tailoring it even more. Hmm. And how many centers will participate in that trial? I can't
1: imagine they're it's, these are, you said, already a rare tumor, and then you're dividing it into four
2: subtypes, right? Exactly. You got it. So the more we um, learn about these tumors, the more subtypes we get, the harder it is to actually study them. Mm. So um, this particular site, I don't think they have all of their uh, institutes pledged on yet. Gotcha. Um, but uh, I can tell you that um, kind of one of the greatest uh, advances we've seen in, in pediatric cancer treatment is through the Children's Oncology Group, um, which is through the NIH, through the NCI. Um, these are all national organizations, and what it's allowed us to do over the past several decades is collaborate and share our data. Um, and due to this collaboration, we have been to been able to increase uh, cure rates tremendously. Um, We've discovered that practicing in a silo and, and studying in a silo, just it doesn't work. Uh, mm. We can never get the numbers we need to make progress.
1: Well, you know, adult oncologists don't pay in, play in the sandbox as well as I, you. I, I do. <laughs> <too. laughs>
2: and there's, you know, and how can I put this uh, politically? Children do better than adults. I don't know if it's because of what we do or because of what the kids do.
1: Uh, Probably a little of both. Yeah,
2: yeah, but they do pretty well.
1: Yeah. Well, that's great. And uh, so... <laughs> Uh, You said that some of these tumors are very chemotherapy
2: sensitive. So will most kids be getting chemotherapy for their brain tumors? Well, most kids... Um... For the most part, yes. I'd say the majority of kids will be getting chemotherapy for their brain tumors. Um, The exception to that would be these very benign-looking low-grade tumors, um, Mm -hmm. in which case we can often get away with just resection and careful monitoring. If those progress, then we will have to go to um, more kind of low-dose chemotherapies to keep them in check. Mm -hmm. And is radiation part of the treatment as well for some patients? Absolutely. Absolutely. So radiation is something that we... um, Consider very closely. It's something that we don't do willy nilly. Um, Radiation has its own unique side effects, especially in younger children. Um, We know that. we can see uh, IQ drops. We can see uh, cognitive deficits down the road. We can see increased risk for secondary cancers, increased risk for endocrine disorders. So we use it when we need to. Um, and that's often in more malignant tumors or tumors that are growing out of control. But some kids will get only chemotherapy. Absolutely.
1: Then. Huh. And does that not affect the growing brain?
2: That um, that's a, that's a great question, and, and I think that there is some more recent data that suggests it does, but not nearly as much as radiation. Mm. Um, and age absolutely plays a role in it. So we don't like to give these these therapies unless we absolutely have to. Yeah, my adult patients all talk
1: about chemo brain. Chemo brain. Yes. I, 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 we don't really understand how much of that. I mean, apparently some of it is a real thing. But absolutely. I, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. On the other hand, I would imagine the kids are. More plastic and probably they, can recover. They can probably take a joke a lot better than adults. <laughs> I mean, not that chemo are. is a joke. I don't mean to bully. Yeah,
2: no, um. absolutely not. Um, no, they um, they bounce. That's all I can say. They can bounce. The 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 pediatric brain is much more plastic mm-hmm. um, than the adult brain, and yeah. so you know we're starting to see looking at brain development that that perhaps these kids are forming new interneuron connections um, mm-hmm. after some are broken. And as your kids are being treated. Um, I mean, are they like in the middle of misery
1: most of the time? Or I'm always struck in the hospital when I see the little kids, you know, wheeling around in their little, you know, cute little things. And they've got, you know, their little bald heads and everything. But they all, they all seem pretty happy. I mean, I, is, yeah. am I yeah. just seeing a, you
2: know, a subset of unusually well-adjusted kids? Or No, no. I think I, I, I always tell parents during that first meeting, you know, you use the word chemotherapy, and, and I often follow it up with, have you ever known anyone on chemotherapy? The answer is usually yes. And, and you know, that person often was not doing well, was nauseous, was, yeah. was skinny, cachet, miserable. And they often followed up, well, I want you to know, kids tend to do much better. Um, and, you know, for one, their, their bodies are, like I said, they bounce. Um, and I think mentally, kids are just, um, a lot of times they lack the anxiety that adults have. Um, they don't know any better. They don't know any better. They don't know any better. Um, and so... You know, people always say, you know, how do you deal with kids with cancer, you know? And I often have to say, you know, I think I'd have a tougher time with adults. (laughs) The kids have just this elasticity um, that makes them truly inspiring.
1: Wow. So you wanted to give us some sort of better than we expect news about uh, how terrible these (laughs) diagnoses are. (laughs) Um,
2: How well are we doing? how well are we doing so it depends on how you want to break down the tumors if we're looking at brain tumors overall i think we're probably at about a 60 to 70 percent cure rate wow yeah so we're there we're we're getting there um that being said like i said i I think we are continuing to struggle with long-term effects of the tumors and the Mm -hmm. treatment itself and and so that's where we are putting substantial energy um we are um trying to reduce the doses of radiation, um, as much as possible without changing cure rates. We are trying to get more targeted therapies, um, and we're improving our surgical techniques.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I'm sure that, uh, even if there's some cognitive loss,
1: I mean, if the quality of life is good. Mm-hmm. You know, I think probably both the kids and the
2: parents are more than grateful. Absolutely. No, yeah. ab- absolutely. You know, our, our overall goal is, um, survival with quality of life that's acceptable to the parents. And and I think we achieve that most of the time. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Um,
1: so I, I guess the other part of your job has to do with uh, adolescence uh-huh. and cancer. And yeah. Is that also just brain cancer?
2: No, it's not. It's not. Um, there's a significant cadre of patients in there with, with brain cancer. If you look at cancers overall in kids, about 25% um, are brain cancers. So we've got that group. But I also... Um, HEP is the medical director of the Adolescent and Young Adult Clinic um, in uh, the children's hospital. So we see patients ages around 13 to lower 20s. And we are extremely lucky um, in that in this uh, clinic, we have a psychiatrist and psychologist there every week. How about a policeman? Uh, we have the social workers for that. <laughs> um Yeah, no, they uh it, you know, it it's interesting adolescents. They they are not adults, they're not kids, they often feel that they are kind of the, the lost patients. They don't belong either place. They they sure. don't want to walk into a clinic and see a clown. You know, they 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 want their own space, um, right. and so we're working right now to provide that for them right now we have the services in place we have the programmatic issues starting to get ironed out. we are uh, hopefully we'll soon begin building an actually uh, a adolescent uh, kind of inpatient center, an area for the adolescents to kind of hang out when they have to be inpatient. Um, so it's it's just them. They feel like it's their space.
1: Lots of MTV and video
2: games. Oh, right. yeah. Uh, yep, you got it. <laughs> um, we're actually working um, with an organization called Teen Cancer America. Um, which is uh, kind of the brainchild of Roger Daltrey from The Who. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. He uh, implemented this program in England, and given his influence there, he has actually made this part of uh, legislation that hospitals need to provide special services for adolescents with cancer. Um, I don't think we quite get that far here in the States, um, but he is certainly making us aware of the issues, and we're certainly working with him to achieve that. Did he have any particular personal connection with uh, adolescent cancer? Or this is this just uh... you know? His, his. Uh, I think he's always been an advocate for teenagers, um, and I think he's seen the dark side of cancer. Um, and uh, from what I understand, his personal physician has actually kind of moved him in this direction and introduced him to this issue.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just saying, you know, as you mentioned Roger Daltrey and the Who, I, I think about Tommy, mm-hmm. and you just think about that whole um, sort of mythic, uh, sort of lost child. Yep. Adolescent, exactly. not being heard or can't see. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so in some ways, it's very, um, I don't know, um, epic uh-huh. uh, that, that he might be
2: uh, – maybe I'm making too much out of it. No. But. I think I think it's a bit poetic. I yeah. Mean, I, I really do.
1: Yeah. Pretty interesting.
2: Yeah. So, um, wow. So is that, is that a busy clinic? I mean um, – We're getting busier. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah you know you you look at the big issues in adolescence, um, particularly adolescent teens, and there 's the psychosocial aspect, the feeling that they don 't belong, the inability to relate to their peers. I mean your peers are dealing with who 's got the hottest phone and you 're dealing with the tumor wow so yeah. so it 's hard to relate again with your peers, and so we try to introduce them to each other, um, try to get those social networks going again. Um, try to make sure that they get the support that they need from ancillary services. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is becoming busier. Um, our psychiatrists and psychologists are starting to expand a little bit to the inpatient unit um, to see as many kids as they can on Thursdays. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we are getting there. We're in the process of, of hiring uh, more staff to help these kids through the medical system um, and help them get all the resources that they need. And do most of the kids come from Connecticut? Right. Right now, they do. Yes, yeah, I would say the most more from Connecticut. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I know that uh, our cancer center is uh, certainly reaching out to some of the neighboring states as we mm-hmm. develop sort of specialized services, and this would seem like a, a real draw. Although maybe maybe other places like in New York are, are also very up to speed about this. I don't know.
2: Yeah, no, I think we are a bit a bit a bit ahead of the curve on this. Yeah. Um, it's. You know, I I came from a very big center, and uh, politics is difficult, and I I think it's difficult to get these resources as quickly as you need them. Mm -hmm. And, And I think it's a very big deal for us to have psychology and psychiatry in that clinic every day. Um, where we can say, you know, I think this kid's really struggling. I think he'd benefit from some other services. Mm. So you've been here, what, about a year and a half? year and a half, correct. Yeah, so
1: what drew you What drew you here to New Haven?
0: <laughs>
2: um, I think I was extremely impressed with um, the Children's Hospital as as well as uh, Smallow Cancer Center. Um, I think that Yale is in a very unique position where we've got – Um, experts in many different fields working side by side. Um, I did much of my training at a very large children's hospital, Um, And I think we were a bit isolated. We didn't have the researchers right there. We didn't have the adult docs right there. Um, And I think a lot gets done here in the hallway where you can stop someone and say, let me run this idea by you. Or, you know, what would it take to bring this idea to fruition in translational research? And so it was a very, I think it's a very exciting time here in terms of advancing both patient care and research.
0: Dr. Asher Marks is Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Hematology-Oncology and Director of Pediatric Neuro-Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888 2344YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.